0: Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Everyone well? Good stuff. I must excuse myself. I unfortunately, on Friday evening, I started to go down with a bit of a cold. My, my little one, Ezra, has been coughing his guts up. Bless him. So, um, so I'm a little bit under the weather. So if I sniffle or cough, please excuse me. And um, you can pray for healing if you'd like to. And um, we'll get through it all together. So how many of you are into detective books? Things like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie. yeah. Or f- for the Cantonese, Cantonese speakers among us, Mo yeah? <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Poy, for helping me with that one. My wife and I were absolutely hooked on a TV show called Line of Duty. Any fans? Line of Duty. Each each series was so nail-biting, had plot twists, and throughout every episode you were trying to work out who the bad guy was. In fact you were actually trying to work out who the good guy was as well. And it was like, oh what's happening? It was so on edge. But I think there's something in all of us that loves to try and be a detective, to work out what is happening, to try and discover. In our passage today, which is Matthew 12, if you want to turn there, Jesus, Jesus is interacting with people and he is giving clues about who he is, helping people to judge if he truly is what he claims to be. So we're going to unpack some of these clues and throughout we're going to be asking the question, is Jesus who he says he is? You know, Jesus claims to be the Son of God. He claims to have authority to bring heaven on the earth. He claims to be the King of heaven. We're going to be like detectives trying to put the clues together. And so whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether it's your first time hearing about this Jesus person, I'd love for us all to be asking the question again. Is Jesus really who he says he is? So let's read together Matthew chapter 12 we're going to start at verse 22, and we'll go through 29. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it'll be on the screens. And you can also download the YouVersion Bible app, and you can read it on there too. So let's read together. Matthew 12:22. Then they bought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So, is Jesus really who he says he is? What are the clues that we see in this passage? Well, firstly, Jesus heals a demon possessed man. But you might say, What's, for, what's special about that? We see loads of different times when Jesus heals people from demons. In fact, Jesus himself in the passage says that the Pharisees would have expected people to, have de- uh, to be uh, delivered from demons because he said, who do your people drive them out by? So it's clear that even the Pharisees and rabbis were used to delivering people from evil spirits and demons. And from looking at Jewish history of the time, we can see that there was an established process for Jewish leaders to, de- to, li- to deliver people from evil spirits. And the process went something like this. Number one, the person would first establish communication with the demon, i.e. the person who was oppressed by the demon would speak to the deliverer, I guess, um, and they would establish communication. So that's step one. Step two was the person would then have to find out the demon's name. So the, the deliverer would ask the, person, the, ask the demon, what is your name? And then thirdly, after finding out the demon's name, that person would have, had, would have authority over it and would be able to cast out the demon by use of that name. And people would have been used to this. And even Jesus used this method. Remember in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 5, when he met a demon-possessed man, he said, what is your name? Remember that? And the person said, my name's Legion. And then what happened? Jesus kicked him out. So it, 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 Jesus uses this himself. And the, the rabbis of the time would have used it as well. And so if deliverance was normal to Jewish people, why is this occasion important? Well, verse 22, notice the words after demon-possessed man. What does it say? He was blind and mute. And this is a really important distinction. Remember, what were the first two steps of that process that we just talked about? The first one was established communication, and the second one was find out his name. But if the person's mute, they can't find out the name, they can't deliver him. And so this was, um, the, this was like kind of one of the signs of the Messiah. The Jews believed that the only person who would be able to deliver a mute person from a demonic spirit would be the Messiah, God's chosen one, whom he would send to rescue his people Israel and bring them into everlasting peace. In fact, there were actually four miracles that only the Messiah could do. Anyone know them? Might be a bit long shot. Heal a leper. So heal someone from leprosy cast out a demon from a mute person, that's the second, heal someone that's been born blind, and raise the dead. They were the four things that, only the, that the Jews believed only the Messiah could do. And so by delivering this blind and mute man, Jesus demonstrates to those of Jewish tradition that he is the Messiah. What's more, the Gospels record him doing all four of these messianic miracles, not just one. Jesus is clearly demonstrating to his Jewish audience that he is the one who has been promised anticipated and hoped for. He is the one sent by God. It's no wonder then, what do those people say in verse 23? They said, could this be the son of David? I.e., could this be the Messiah? The son of David was uh, prophesied to be um, one of King David's descendants and so another name for the Messiah was son of David. So is Jesus really who he says he is? This clue would suggest that, yeah, he is. Because he has fulfilled what only the Messiah can do. Did the the Jewish authorities accept this, though? No. They knew that if Jesus had done these things through the power of God, then he must be the Messiah. And if that's the case, that his entire message, everything that he said that completely turned the old order of things around, everything had to be accepted. That was too much of a a thing for the Jews to accept. Rather Rather than accepting the signs, they gave the verdict that Jesus must have done these miracles not by God's power, but by the devils, by Satan's. And they say in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. I don't know if you know this, but practicing magic arts by Satan's power was an offense punishable by death in Jewish culture. And so if the uh, rabbis could, and the Pharisees could convince the people that Jesus was in fact doing this through Satan's power, they could have easily had him killed before, without going through the whole you know, crucifixion thing. But Jesus answers their accusation by giving a second clue about who he is, this time through logic. He points out how ridiculous it would be for the enemy to give Jesus power to then take back ground from the enemy and go against the enemy's purposes. It would be like Manchester United giving money to Arsenal (laughs) so that Arsenal could then go buy a player and beat Manchester United. That's not the example that Jesus used, that's my example. But it doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense. Or it's like an army paying another army to buy weapons to then fight them with. That wouldn't make sense. And so Jesus finishes with the killer line, the mic drop moment. Verse 28, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. A.k.a. Jesus is saying, your logic doesn't line up. If I did these things with God's power, it must mean that his kingdom has come, that this was his will, and more so that I am the anointed king of that kingdom. Boom. Boom. (laughs) He leaves the Jews no room to come back at him. Is Jesus who he says he is? He's given us two clues, doing, doing a uniquely messianic miracle. We'll try saying that three times fast. Uniquely messianic miracle and his perfect logic argument. So, what does this mean for us? You might say, well, I believe that Jesus existed, or maybe he was a great moral leader, but I don't believe he was God. But Jesus leaves no room for these interpretations. By doing the miracles that only the Messiah can do, he proved that he was the Messiah and the Messiah was prophesied to be God himself. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Therefore, Jesus must be God and must be the King of God's kingdom. If he didn't do these miracles, then his moral teachings mean nothing. Jesus is in the strongest of ways revealing who he really is, and giving us evidence to make a decision. Just after I graduated, I was called up to jury service. I don't know if any of you have done that, but it's a, um, it's a strange but eye-opening experience. And, and as a jury, uh, we sat on, on, a, on a case as a jury, and we had to decide whether the defendant was innocent or guilty. And I remember everyone in the court, you know, the judge, the lawyers on both sides, really stressing that we must come to a decision or a verdict beyond reasonable doubt. You might, you'll might, you hear that phrase a lot, beyond reasonable doubt. And we as the jury didn't know for sure if the person had committed those crimes. You know, we weren't actually there when the offences were committed. And so we had to decide based on evidence and come to a verdict beyond reasonable doubt. And so it is with us in our faith, we must Weigh up the evidence of Jesus and make a step of faith to believe in him beyond reasonable doubt. And it's important to recognize that there will always be room for doubt. There will always be questions that you cannot answer. You know, that's where faith comes in. Jesus hasn't, he's revealed a lot about himself, but he hasn't come and stood right in front of us physically. It, you know, we, don't, we don't have that level of like, yes, Jesus is definitely real because I've seen him right here and I can feel him, Right. So there is a step for doubt. There is a, there is a space that Jesus, Jesus isn't going to do that until he comes back. And so that's where faith comes in. Where are you at today? <clears throat> do you need to take a step of faith? Some of us in that room will have never made that decision to follow Jesus. And if you want to do that today, there will be an opportunity later on. But even if you have accepted him, do you really believe that Jesus is everything that he says he is. Either he is everything or he's nothing and mad. <laughs> he, can't be, he, can't, he can't be that some of the things he said was true, but the rest of it I don't really like, so I'm just going to leave it. Or maybe I've not seen that part of Jesus to be true in my own life, so I don't believe it. Or maybe uh, that, that part of Jesus is offensive to me, and so I'm not going to believe that. Either Jesus is everything that he says he is or he's nothing. But in this passage, I hope you'll agree with me, that he proves that he is who he says he is. Okay, so the second half of our passage today then looks at something that can sound troubling at first but has an important message to us. Let's read together Matthew 12, this time we're starting at verse 30. And while you find that, I'm just going to take a quick drink, so bear with me. Oh, squash is the one, isn't it? Anyone up for squash? Come on. Come on. Okay, verse, uh, starting at verse 30, I'm going to go through to 37. Whoever is not with me... So this is still still Jesus, still talking to the Pharisees after he's just healed this blind person. So it's still the same story. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil, thing, evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So firstly, there are two points I want to draw out of that passage. But firstly, we'll look at the unforgivable sin. And for us reading it, it can sound incredibly daunting. What if we accidentally speak against the Holy Spirit and then can't be forgiven? Well, to put you at ease, if you're worried about that, it's almost certain that you haven't and won't be guilty of that. Jesus here is still speaking to the Pharisees after they accused the Holy Spirit's work as being from the devil. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is not doing miracles or making us feel all warm and fuzzy when we're in ministry time. That's not the primary work of the Holy Spirit. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus and so if we reject the work of the Holy Spirit as being from the devil or something else or fake or whatever, we are rejecting the Jesus that he reveals. And remember that Jesus said that he, only, only through faith in him, Joe said this morning, only through faith in him can anyone be accepted by God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if we reject the Holy Spirit, we reject the Jesus that he reveals, and we are denying ourselves of the only mechanism to be accepted by God. When Jesus says that those committing the sin will not be forgiven, he's not saying that they won't, he's saying that they can't, because they have denied him. The only way that they can be forgiven is through Jesus. It's also important to recognize that the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is consistent, deliberate, deliberate intentional rejection of God's work. It's a bit like a disobedient child ramming their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you. When actually the parent is saying, no, don't go into that road, you're about to get run over. You see what I mean? There's there's an intentional, deliberate blocking out of everything that the Holy Spirit is doing so that I can still remain in my truth rather than accepting what the Holy Spirit is doing. Sorry, that was a bit. Was that a bit loud? I had my fingers in my ears, so I couldn't hear. <laughs> so we haven't committed the unforgivable, unfor, unforgivable sin, but how might we have ignored what Jesus has been saying to us? How might we have rejected some of His character? Are we really fully believing that He is everything that He says He is? He is really who He says He is, and how might we decide to move forwards? Today, with open ears, open hearts, open minds, open eyes, to the truth about Jesus. Okay, everyone take a breath. There's been a lot of theology in there, and it's been quite heavy stuff. So everyone just take a breath, give your body a bit of a shake. Come on, I know we're British. Come on, let's just, you know, wake ourselves up again. We'll finish off. So the next part of Jesus' message is about fruit. So turn to your neighbor and tell them your favorite fruit, and we'll report back in a second. Okay, okay. Let's bring it back. Anyone got any? I, my favourite food is mango. Any mango? Yeah. Oh, lots of mango fans in this room. Anybody else? Any others? Pineapple? Okay, satsuma, yeah. There's some good persimmon. What? <laughs> I had never heard of a persimmon before Andrea introduced me to it. Okay. Let's bring it back together. My favorite... Yeah, so it's important that we eat enough fruit in a day, isn't it? It's important to talk about it. It's important that we raise an awareness (laughs) about it. No? (laughs) That went above people's heads, didn't it? Sorry about that. So is this the sort of fruit that Jesus is talking about? No, it's not the same as what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus uses this illustration to give us a powerful metaphor about our lives And our hearts. He says, What did he say? He says, If you make a tree good, its fruit will be good. If the tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. He then relates that to our hearts in verse 35 A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Jesus is still speaking, again, still speaking to these Pharisees after healing this man. And his point is threefold. Firstly, if Jesus has done a miracle, that good, that good fruit must come from the good within him. He's not just manufacturing good stuff. It's actually coming overflowing from the goodness which is in him. He is who he says he is. Secondly, if the Pharisees have made such an evil claim that the Holy Spirit's work is from the devil, then that is a mark of the evil stored up in their hearts. We will know an act of evil or good. By its fruit. And this is a helpful tool as we look on and make judgments about things in the world, you know, things in church, things in society. Is this thing good or is this thing bad? What are the fruits? Is it good fruit or bad fruit? And thirdly, Jesus leads us to the question what do our mouths speak? What kind of fruit are we producing? Do our interactions with others lead to life and harmony or destruction? Are we bringing those around us closer to Jesus? Are our words evil or good? And Jesus warns us that what comes out of our mouths is a reflection of what is in our hearts. What we think of, say, and do all come from attitudes of the heart. Have you ever caught yourself saying something that you instantly regret? Or you get to the end of your day and you're lying in your bed and you think, oh, why did I say that thing in that situation? And you just want to take back those words, you know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe you've even argued with somebody and you've deliberately said something that you know is going to push their buttons and, and, and annoy them, but you've done it just to sort of get one up on them in the argument. I know that I can, regret to doing, I, I can relate to doing all those things, unfortunately. <laughs> and when we have those realizations, it's important for us to go back to Jesus, to repent of our words, our thoughts, and actions, and ask him to change our hearts. It's not just about kind of a, God, would you wash my hands from the things that I've done? Would you wash my heart and help me to become the person you're asking me to be? I don't know about you, but I want everything that I say to bring life. I want to be a person that builds others up, encourages them and speaks hope. And I know that in order to do that, I need God's help and I need to be changed by him. I'm, I'm in a season of just getting on my knees before him and asking him to change me, to mould my heart and my mind and to ask for his help. Maybe, maybe you want to join me in that season too. And so as we come into land, let's take a moment to remember and reflect what God might be saying to us. We started by asking the question, is Jesus really who he says he is? We looked at how Jesus left clues that point towards him really being the Messiah, God's chosen one, and even being God himself. And then we looked at how that applies to us. Do we really believe everything that Jesus has said about himself? Or are we deliberately ignoring the witness of his Holy Spirit about who he is and sticking our fingers in our ears? Perhaps because believing the truth would be painful or because we haven't experienced an element of his character in our own lives. And lastly, we thought about the overflow of our hearts, our words and actions, and what they tell us about ourselves and how we can come to Jesus to ask for his help. So what is God saying to you today? We're just going to stand together and then we can just ask the Holy Spirit. So if you're able, would you stand with me? We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.